Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be starting in verse 7. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Each one of them. According to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, your word is perfect, written in such a way as to be always true, always reliable, always dependable. And we ask that you would give us understanding and give us faith. For Christ's sake, amen. There is a particular joy associated to finishing a big project. That particular joy of maybe you've had that home improvement project that's been malingering and continuing on and on and on. And when you finally get it finished, oh, 
how good it feels. Or that day at graduation when you graduated from high school and you thought, whew, that big project, 13 years of schooling, whew, made it to the end. If you're a runner or an athlete, you know the feeling where you cross the finish line and the miles that you've churned out have reached completion. There's a great joy in a project completed. You think, wow, that's interesting you know, introduction. It's maybe for the wrong sermon because we still have several chapters to go in the book of Revelation. Well, yes and no, yes, we have several chapters to go, but in terms of the great narrative of Scripture, the great story of the consequences of sin, the great story of good versus evil, the great story of of the challenge and conflict in Scripture, this is the end. The end of... Revelation 20, verses 7 through the end of the chapter, tell of the final interaction with evil. As a result, it is one of those passages that um, we'll call them the, the mystics have loved. I call them mystics because they seek to know that which I don't believe is revealed in Scripture. We're trying to parse out and overanalyze and frame out who exactly Gog and Magog is and when this is going to happen and prophesying this exact day the world is going to end and spend all of their time foaming at the mouth over the wrong emphasis in the passage the kind of classic missing the point. Here in Revelation chapter 20, we've gotten the latter part of it here. We, we build to the kind of climactic telling of what's been taking place throughout the book. Jesus, in revealing it to John, and John in uh, explaining it to us, recording it for us, has been telling the end of time, but he's been telling it like a collection of, of Polaroid pictures. If you've ever gone back and looked at the, the pictures of your childhood, many of you, you get them and they're maybe a little bit out of order. They tell the story of your life, but they're kind of in a collection and you can kind of piece it together. That's how the book is written, where it tells one story, but it tells it um, in some cases out of order, but certainly in loops, rehashing and reviewing and intensifying to help our, our frail and fragile and feeble minds attempt to get a sense of scale. One great illustration of that intensification has been this reoccurring interaction with the lake of fire. We've already seen in chapter 17 the great prostitute, uh, the city of Babylon, Rome, the, the human culture that is arrayed against God is thrown into it and destroyed. In chapter 19, the beast and his prophet, an intensification, taking it from the generic world, the generic culture of mankind, and intensifying it to the minions of Satan, they are thrown in in chapter 19. 
But in chapter 20, it's the end. In chapter 20, it's the the probably clearest explanation we have of the last day, the great judgment day, where the intensification comes to final roost, where it's fully intensified and all evil is destroyed. There's three kind of real judgments that take place in this passage as it reads through not or given not all three are given equal treatment in terms of length of conversation but three that take place. Verses 7 through 10 walk us through what happens to the devil himself in the end. The thousand years have ended. Those thousand years introduced in verses 1 through 6. I uh, take the view that Augustine and Calvin both held that that is uh, a portrait of the era of the church. It is the time in which the nations are no longer deceived and we watch uh, God's truth expand and increase and explode inside creation, kind of uh, affirming that and explaining that through our own understanding. Prior to the uh, birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, in order to be uh, one of, uh, to know the Lord, you had to be connected to Jerusalem and the Jews. After the, uh, the resurrection and the ascension and the truth of the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. It's hard to find a place where the church is not. She may be persecuted. She may be underground and hard to find, but it is hard to find a place where the church is not. God's truth has covered the entire world. And as the era of this period between the first coming and the second coming, that's the millennium, that's the era where Christ reigns, he is reigning currently, we know he is already seated at the right hand of God the Father, seated because his work is finished, he is the ruler already. But his reign is not yet consummated, and so for that thousand years we live in a tension the in-between time, the time in which we live. Verse 7 clarifies, though, that we're out of that time now. Uh, That thousand years has ended, and the devil has been cut loose to do his worst for a season. And he immediately uh, leaves the place in which he has been held. Again, figuratively speaking, he's still at work, but now is uh, given permission to, in essence, do his worst. And goes out and gathers what, uh, the way that John describes it here is the portrait of a great battle. Where the devil goes and gathers all of his minions. He gathers all of the nations that he has deceived. He gathers all of those people that, as we read in Matthew, those that are walking down the wide way. Those that have passed through the wide gate or on the easy road to destruction, they're gathered up as his army and they are arrayed before the Lord God in all of their might, ready to do combat. And I love it. It spends actually a surprising, for the amount of words that are used here, it spends a surprising amount of time explaining the gathering process. He's released from prison in verse 7. 
In verse 8, he goes to deceive the nations. That's how he's been so successful. And then from the four corners of the earth, and again, the idea being he's, he, it is this universal gathering. He gathers all of those that are deceived. And there at the end of verse 8, the number of these on his side is uncountable. It is so great. And verse 9 frames it out. Oh no, what's going to happen? Here is the devil, the great and mighty evil one. The one who tricked and unfallen Adam and Eve into sin. He marches with his army, verse 9, up against the Lord God, against the camp of the saints. And I love how (laughs) John frames out the battle. All of the forces of evil come to do battle against God and his army. And and what happens? The Lord just incinerates them. It's It's the way it reads. Out of all of this gathering comes to an end in verse 9. Fire comes down from heaven and consume their dead. They're gone. They're out of the picture. All of the armies, all of his, you know, all of that, that's, that's out of the equation. That's out of the story. Let's take them off the table now for the final interaction. What happens between the Lord and the devil? The devil who had deceived the nations had deceived these people made in the Lord's image and led them into great evil. He was thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever and ever. That lake of fire is that great portrait of God's eternal judgment where the mighty God, the perfectly wrathful, perfectly righteous, perfectly just God pours out His wrath perfectly for all eternity. And just so you kind of, again, get the clear picture here, this is not a situation where it could be said, well, it's not fair. It's not fair. No, it is. This is the perfectly righteous judge. This is not a judge that could take a bribe. He can't. He's holy. This is not a judge that could in any way show favoritism and be like, well, it's not that bad. He's the perfectly just judge and instead pours out his wrath perfectly. On the devil. And I'll be honest, as I think about the the character of God and thinking about his wrath and his judgment being poured out again, remember, he is wrathful. Uh, He is all of his characteristics all of the time. He's not like me or you where we get into a mood. Maybe we're a a little hungry and so we get a little cantankerous and we get a, a little bit of food in our belly and suddenly we're a lot happier. We'll go take a shower and it clears our minds. He's not that way. He doesn't vacillate between emotions. He is all of his character all of the time. He is always perfect wrath. And I think the thing that bothers me the most as I consider his perfect wrath is to think he's perfectly creative. 
I mean, our vengeance, (laughs) evil as it is, is so boring. I mean, all we can think of when we go to contemplate revenge, as evil as our contemplations are, the best we can do are ways to hurt people emotionally, hurt people physically. He's the perfectly creative God, and I don't know exactly what that lake of fire means, but I know it's far worse than what my mind can understand. The devil is cast away and defeated. And I'd make just a couple of quick applications as we contemplate that. One, throughout human history, there has been this falsehood that has existed in the minds and hearts of mankind, men and women, boys and girls, and that is this false idea that good and evil are equally balanced. And that sometimes good wins a little bit and sometimes evil wins a little bit, but in the end, they kind of, everything works out for kind of a neutral position. The reality is sometimes I found actually, I think Christians let that sort of thinking sneak into the back of our minds where we give the devil more power and more credit than he deserves. He is already a defeated creature. It's not yet been made full. That is explained here, but he's already a defeated creature. It's why we pray the way that we do. Praying for God to display his mighty victory over the devil. It's why we should be endeavoring to put on the full armor of God. Man, I love that. That's Paul's implication. Put on the armor of God because you're supposed to go fight. Because the good guys always win in the end. I think maybe even more so is uh, certainly, I think for Christians today, certainly in the West, in America, there's actually, I would say, a bigger temptation to secretly and quietly harbor love for the other side. Sometimes it's, it's verbalized in the words of compassion. It might sound like tenderness. It might sound like kindness. But instead, actually, what it really is, is affection for evil. Look at your own heart. Examine the entertainments that you enjoy. Examine the way that you think and speak about evil. Examine the way that you kind of contemplate it in your own mind and think, how much do I sound like the New Testament, which Jude, hating even the garment stained by sin. If I brought into your home a coat, left it on your couch, and then called you later and said, oh, I forgot, by the way, I got that coat from somebody who I know has the coronavirus. I accidentally left it on your couch. Could you handle that for me? How would you treat that? Would you be going and rubbing your face in it? Well, some of you weirdos might, I don't know, but most of us would not, right? Most of us would mask on, gloves on, Lysol everywhere, get the Clorox out, Clorox the couch, I don't care about the stains. 
That's just a virus. Yet with evil so often, I think we actually do that. Go rub our face in it. Hide it away in our heart and harbor that secret affection. And yet we know in the end it it loses. Why do we love it? Evil's defeated. Satan is defeated. This is the capstone uh, of all evil as the intensification of the book has taken place. All evil here kind of personified in the devil himself. It's destroyed. There's nothing left. Well, not exactly. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne. And him who is seated on it. So now we have before us God himself seated on the throne of judgment. And we see the second judgment take place. First was the, the devil himself is thrown into the lake of fire. Secondly, here in verse 11, it's almost in some ways a self-judgment. God arrives in his glory seated on the judgment throne and the earth and the sky nope their way out. They understand what's taking place. Judgment is taking place and even the inanimate world around us is like, um, no, nope, no, 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 no thanks. I'm, I'm ready to be out. And they go. And I love how... Uh, It personifies them in explaining the earth and the sky flee away and no place was found for them. Almost that reminiscent ring of of Joseph and Mary looking for a place to deliver the Christ child and there was no place found for home for them. There's, There's no place for this creation to be found. There's no home for this creation and it's widely considered this is the part where the created order is destroyed. The earth is consumed. The sky is consumed. The sea is consumed. The plants and the animals are consumed. The created order is consumed. And again, I would beg the question for you to consider your own hearts and to contemplate your affections and to think about how many of the things we just love. That will fall in this category. Things that will pass away and be destroyed. Be consumed. Just think about the toys that we love. If you're a child, they're children's toys. If they're adults, they might be much more expensive toys. Cars, boats, houses. Various things. Think about the pleasures that we have connected to the body. Maybe it's the good food that you eat, that restaurant that you love so much. Maybe you're in mourning because you haven't been able to eat it the way that you have loved and longed to do. The earth passes away. I'm going to talk about one of the great benefits of this COVID-19 mess has been that it's forced us as Christians to kind of contemplate what parts of this life are we clinging to so tightly? 
What parts of this world are we clinging to so tightly that now that money might be tight for some of us, now that we're in restriction and being told to stay in our homes and less necessary to go out, now that we're in all of these challenges, what are the things that I'm clinging to? What are the things that I just, I long, I miss this created order? And certainly that's not to say that affections and delights in what God has made her. That's wicked. That's not to say that at all. He's the one who invented taste buds. He's the one who invented food. He knows what he's doing. It is to say, though, it's important for us to contemplate the wrong ordering of desire. To think about for how many of us we have been longing for these physical pleasures, these physical aspects of life at the expense of our love for Christ Jesus. I mean, to think about how many times a day you contemplate not just the necessities of life, but the luxuries of life and do not contemplate the one who made them. Satan is judged, the evil is destroyed. The earth is judged, it's destroyed by this point. The created order has passed away. The sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxy, the universe, unmade in a way. All to build to verse 12, where the pinnacle arrives. And interestingly here, now it's not the devil He's already gone. It's not the created order in generic. It's already gone now. It's God interacting with the pinnacle of creation. God interacting with those who have something that nothing else in all of creation has. Those that have his image. Those that are made in such a way that their insides and their outsides display what the mighty God looks like. They're the last and the focus. Verse 12, I saw the dead, all of them, all mankind, men and women, boys and girls, all are gathered together. Verse 13 gives us a sense of scope that even the sea gives up the dead. Even death and Hades give up the dead. And this again helps us to understand this is not just a literal storytelling here because the sea's already been destroyed. This is figurative and symbolic language in every way. But what's happening here is the things that are, are portrayed in Jewish culture as the, the scariest, those that consumed people, killed them, and held them, the holding places of the dead, all of them give up the dead. Verse 13, it says the sea gives up the dead. And today, I guess in the West, in America, we might say, and the cemeteries gave up their dead. The morgue gave up their dead. All humanity, men and women, boys and girls, are brought together before the throne of God and brought together for judgment. 
And something, I guess, by my standards, might be a little bit unexpected. As all these people are gathered together before God's throne, the way that this is explained is that God then brings out the books. Grabs a stack of books and brings them together. I imagine it's probably a fairly hefty stack. And each of these people are then brought before this throne of judgment. And two books are read. The first book that we know is read for everybody is the book of what they have done in this life. How they use the life that God has given them. Whether they served Him with their hands or with their heart. All the things that they have done. Those hidden evils. Those things that you have done in secret that you think that no one knows about will be made clear here. The deeds done in darkness will be brought to light. Oh, your secret sins will be known. Everything is read about their life, all that they have done in secret and in public, all that they have done, uh, both perceived good and certainly real evil. And they're judged according to that. Now again, if we're, we're honest with ourselves, this is, again, one of those terrifying portraits of Scripture. The idea of uh, the secret desires of our hearts coming out and being made known to everyone is terrifying for most humans. And part of that because we know deep down inside we're not terribly nice people. I love to make fun of it, but just take away food for a little bit. Let us get a little bit hungry and suddenly all of that inner rage comes out so fast. Years ago, I spent three months living with a family where the wife had been in a, uh, a car accident. Husband and wife both had been in a car accident. His airbag had fired off and helped him. She had been in a uh, traumatic brain injury um, and, and had lost the ability to have that, that veil, that, that processor, to s- kind of filter what she thought and what she said. So that everything she thought she said... She's one of the most marvelous people I've ever met and told more people about Jesus, I think, than I ever have in my entire life. But what a sobering reality to think about what it would be like for you to have all of those secret thoughts all written large, and that's what takes place here. And people are judged according to this book, the book of what they have done. And you get the impression it's not made clear. You get the impression that everyone is in some way found guilty. Everyone is found to have fallen short. Everyone has found to have not measured up to God's holy perfection. And that's because the standard to not be judged is complete and total righteousness. 
It's not just the absence of doing bad things. It's the presence of doing good things, and no one measures up to that. And as God has checked their book to see what they are guilty of, to find out exactly how far they have fallen, to find out exactly how far short they are and have not measured up, exactly what level of judgment they get. There are um, gradations of judgment and wrath. In determining exactly how much of his wrath to pour out upon them, right before he does this, he checks the second book. The book of life. And as he looks through that, he finds their name in that, his people, his saints, and all judgments removed. All of the the sin and evil, the falling short, the lack of goodness, all of the sin that they have done is taken away and the righteousness of Christ is their record. They're not found falling short. They're found in righteousness, holiness, justice, truth, and goodness because King Jesus is those things incarnate and their record is made full. Those then found in the book of life are whisked away into glory. We'll hear more about them for the next several weeks. But to those that fall short, that's the primary consideration in this chapter. Verse 13, the sea gives up the dead who are in it, death, and Hades give up the dead who are in them, and they're judged. Each of these dead, all humans, are judged. And those that are not written in the book of life, those that are not covered by the blood of Christ Jesus, to them, each one of them, they are judged according to what they are done, what they have done, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. And again, highlighting this is not some sort of easy way out where people are burnt up, consumed, and then pass away, and that's it. No, this is verse 14. This is the second death. Everyone at this point will have died once physically, but now raised unto eternal death, raised unto eternal destruction where God's felt presence is removed in the goodness side of it and His felt presence is absolutely perceived in His wrath. Verse 15 makes it even more clear. If anyone's name is not written In the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. I like how 14 kind of puts a nice tidy bow on it too. Is Oh yeah, by the way, even even the grave itself is thrown into that. (laughs) For God's people, the, the, the benefits, the victories, the blessings are so great that even death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. It's all done. It's all it's all finished. There's no more cross contaminating.
You see, I think what's laid out here is the great reality that I think most humans spend the biggest portion of our life trying to forget. Every human in some way knows intuitively that death is not the end. We know that because it's written into who we are. It's written into our very nature. We're made in God's image, and God is not one who ends. And in some way, neither do we. We have immortal souls that will be raised unto life or death eternal. In fact, actually, we have immortal bodies in some sense that will be raised themselves unto life or death eternal. The great reality is, I think most people know deep down in their soul, this is not the end. And even were we to die, that itself is not the end. There is something that comes after. The problem is that which comes after is really bad for a lot of people. And I would suggest that if you gloat in that, if you do the hey, hey, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, look, you, you're, you're the bad person to make fun of others, you, you've misunderstood how terrible this is. How awful this is. No, this destruction is the kind of destruction that we would not wish upon our greatest enemy. It's the kind of destruction that if we understood it, even the worst of people, we would be pleading with them, please don't go there. Hitler, please, it's not worth it. Stalin, please don't go there. And so I would, would end again with just a couple of quick, quick uh, brief applications. First is, again, if you're listening to this and you don't know, if you know your record, you know your heart, you know your inner monologue, and you know it's bad, but if you're listening to this and you don't know what your end will be, if you don't know what the future holds for you, if you don't know the way to heaven, the answer is clear. It's the book of life. This book of life has been explained throughout Revelation and certainly hinted at in other books. Is It is those that God has called for himself, but specifically those that have been saved by King Jesus. And we got to see what that salvation looks like in Matthew chapter 8 so beautifully as we had both uh, a man who was sick and a centurion both just going to Jesus and asking, Lord, please help. We don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your redemption. We don't deserve your salvation. Please help. If you find yourself in that situation, cry out. Cry out to the God who made you. Cry out to the Lord Jesus who redeems you. Cry out to the Spirit of God that helps His people. Cry out for help. 
If you need someone else to talk to, you should be able to track down my email address or phone number through uh, the church website. Talk to me. If you're already a Christian, you already know what the end holds for you. You already know what salvation looks like for you. You already know that sweet joy of life with Christ now. I might encourage you to live with that in the front of your mind. You know, this coronavirus scare has been very helpful for some of us because it's forced us to think about our own death a little bit more frequently. That's a good thing. You need to do that. Because you're going to die. This is what we all are going to do. Young and old, it will happen eventually. But to live with this eternity in mind... And I suggest that if we do that, one of the things that will happen is we will be preoccupied with inviting others to not participate in this destruction. To avoid God's wrath. And the amazing thing is that to avoid it, it doesn't require perfection. Jesus did that. It simply requires repentance and belief. May it be that the church today, the portion of his church at Christ Ridge and um, throughout the world, would be preoccupied with the Jesus who saves men and women, boys and girls, while they were still sinners, even having their names written in the book of life so that they would no longer taste the wrath of God in any way. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you for Christ. You have saved us for Christ. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use your church to proclaim the good news of Christ for his sake and for our good. Amen.